Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Mediterranean Sustainability Partners. I'm your host, Ellen Wasalina. This will be a three-part podcast interviewing author Dr. Jeffrey Gresh. And with Stephen Blank, we're going to review, discuss uh, three different uh, themes around his new book, which is entitled To Rule Eurasia Waves, The New Great Power Competition at Sea. This episode will be recorded on April 28, 2021, and I do hope you will enjoy this episode. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Jeffrey Gresh to our podcast. Here is a short bio. Jeffrey F. Gresh is Professor of International Relations at the College of International Security Affairs, CISA, National Defense University in Washington, D.C., with a primary research focus on maritime affairs. He has also served as the Department Head of International Security Studies and as CISA's Director of the South and Central Asia Security Studies Program. Previously, he was a visiting fellow at Sciences Po in Paris and was the recipient of a Dwight D. Eisenhower Clifford Roberts Fellowship. He also received a U.S. Fulbright Hayes Grant to teach international relations at the Salahadin University in Erbil, Iraq. He has been awarded a Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship to Istanbul, Turkey, and a Presidential Scholarship at the American University in Cairo, Egypt. Most recently, he was named as a Hitachi CFR International Affairs Fellow, a U.S.-Japan Foundation Leadership Fellow, an Associate Member of the Corbett Center for Maritime Policy Studies at King's College in London, and as a term member to the Council on Foreign Relations. He is the author of Gulf Security and the U.S. Military, Regime, Survival, and the Politics of Basing, Stanford University Press, editor of Eurasia's Maritime Rise and Global Security, from the Indian Ocean to the Pacific, Asia, and Arctic, and co-editor of U.S. Studies in Maritime Policies and History. His current book, To Rule Eurasia Waves, The Great Power Competition at Sea, was released in late 2020, with the Chinese-language version being published later in 2021. His research has similarly appeared in other reputable scholarly or peer-reviewed publications. He received a Ph.D. in International Relations and an M.A.L.D. from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. I am so pleased to have Dr. Stephen Blank join me again in this new series of maritime uh, studies. Uh, Dr. Stephen Blank is an internationally recognized expert on Russian foreign and defense policies and international relations across the former Soviet Union. He's also a leading expert on European and Asian security, including energy issues. Since 2020, he has been a senior expert for Russia at the U.S. Institute of Peace and a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. 2013 to 2020, he was a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council.
welcome to a new podcast. I am so pleased to be joined by Jeffrey Gresh and Dr. Stephen Blank. Um, thank you, gentlemen, so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. Um, gentlemen, uh, and, and as you know, this podcast is about Jeffrey Gresh's excellent book that I had a chance to really race through uh, for this podcast. And of course, as a general knowledge, I must say, Jeffrey, it's a, it's a really great book. Thank you for sharing it with us. Thanks very much. All right. So the, this is the first segment. The first segment will be on general themes of maritime Eurasia, competition, geoeconomics, securing SLOCs, and basing. So I just like to, so what I'll do in this format is I'd like to take direct quotes from Jeffrey Gresh's book, and I'd like to then get a discussion around these points. So I'll start with the first quote. Today, the world order appears to be shifting increasingly away from one largely defined by the West toward a new one where Eurasia's emerging continental powers play a more significant and influential role, contributing paradoxically to greater insecurity. Even though China still lags behind the United States in defense spending, China's current defense budget exceeds those of its primary regional neighbors combined, including Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, and Vietnam. Much of China's increased defense spending is translating into more focus on maritime security and power projection capabilities along Eurasia's sea lanes of communication and other vital waterways. Gentlemen, I'd like to get your comments. And of course, Jeffrey's the author. I'd love to hear from you and give us some of your perspective. Yeah, no, so good, good way to kind of start out the shoot. And I think Maybe if I can um, tag on to the one first main point related to maritime geoeconomics. And I think, you know, one of the things that, that I've seen, and I know Stephen has written significantly in, in a wonderful fashion too, uh, on many of these topics, is looking at how, first and foremost, this is very much driving this kind of outward push from China, from India, uh, from Russia, and when I talk about maritime geoeconomics, I think about trade policy, investment policy, economic sanctions, the cybersphere, aid, monetary policy, and energy. And as these interests kind of increase um, across the broader Eurasia uh, landscape, it, it's then pushing, you know, understandably more of a, a security element to all this too. And so. You know, with increased interest means that there has to be more security. And so that's what we kind of see the second layer trend, as you point out, and as I write about, of increased investment in the in the naval aspects. Indeed. Stephen? Well, uh, beyond that, this is part of, of course, the larger Chinese and Russian uh, attempt to assert themselves globally as global as great global powers that have a legitimate interest in everything that's going on and and without whom nothing can be decided that's what they're aiming for and they're aiming for it across multiple domains and the domains that jeffrey cited trade investment cyber and so on uh, particularly maritime are extremely visible all throughout the world uh his book for example talks goes from the arctic to the indian ocean and that's exactly what we're seeing in all of these places in the Arctic, in the uh, Mediterranean, uh, in the Indian Ocean, and in the connecting seas between the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean, like the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf, and so on. And of course, you see this in the uh, 
Pacific Ocean, uh, where China, of course, is attempting to define itself as the strongest Asian power, and the United States, its allies uh, in Asia and now in Europe are pushing back, attempting to put together a kind of uh, coalition, if you like, or maybe an alliance of alliances, uh, which would also involve non-aligned countries like India, uh, but it's also encompassing trade and investment. And it spills over as a result into landlocked areas. For example, the Belt and Road Initiative that China, <clears throat> China is promoting throughout the world arguably originates and now is being extended into Central Asia, which is completely landlocked, but where Central Asian governments are trying to negotiate deals with countries like Pakistan, India, uh, Iran, and China, so that they have some sort of indirect access to the sea. So that's what's happening uh, from their point of view. And, it, and this contest is maritime, but it is also terrestrial. Thank and, you, Stephen. That, that's really that's really a very good point, and we'll we'll move on through a number of points. So I've picked out four essential points uh, extracts from from Jeffrey's book. So let's move on. Uh, the U.S. naval strategist Alfred Thayer Mahan wrote in the problem of Asia and its effect upon international policies about the great geopolitical position of Eurasia between China and the Mediterranean just what you were talking about, Stephen. He believed it was one of the most critical bands in the world and was, and I quote, destined to be a disputed area between Russia, the great land power, and the sea powers. But what Mahan, the ge geographer Nicholas Spikeman, and others never imagined was the melting of the Arctic, the subsequent growing unification of maritime Eurasia's disparate regions, and the emerging competition between Eurasia's land powers at sea. Today, more than 90% of the world's goods transit the sea, bringing into relief the continued importance of the stability and security of the global commons. As China, Russia, and India grow their geoeconomic interests and investments across maritime Eurasia, securing them along with the sea lines of communication will become ever more critical. That's an excellent point, Jeffrey. I really like that 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 particular segment. Please do add on to that. Yeah, so I, you know, I, as well, it's a good summation of, of the larger thinking. It, you know, when, when you do harken back to, to Mackinder, um, yes. you know, with the Heartland Theory, Speakman, who mm -hmm. I begin the book with when he says, who, and, he, and he kind of played off of Mackinder of who controls the Rimland, who's right. Eurasia, who controls Eurasia, yes. controls the destinies of the world. But, you know, as we're seeing just in the front and center present moment of climate change, global warming, the melting of the Arctic in an increased fashion. And that that's what, what my attempt was in the book is to really shift the paradigm. And I don't disagree, you know, that the Eurasia is territorial, it's terra-centric, there's a lot going on in the heartland. So I, I don't Absolutely. dispute that in the slightest, but I think there needs to be increased focus in the maritime space. And that that's what we're seeing. And, and these great geographers uh, who we still cite to this day, they did not mm -hmm. account for, you know, kind of fourth wall, the ice wall of the, the high north. 
and, and it's it's moving much faster than, than frankly I thought was going to happen. Um, you know, more movement with That's Russia true. and China and other countries. Uh, the United States really gearing up. Um, you see a lot of activity within the government as well as in Congress, uh, and then of course in Europe too. NATO yes. um, trying to devise and figure out what what it's going to do. So I think. This is a, and that, that's what the attempt too is to look forward leaning of how we need to look in a very much a global perspective. And as the Arctic melts, as we have increased climate change and global warming, that has massive second and third order effects. That's excellent. Stephen? It's hard to add to that uh, superb analysis, <laughs> but, but, uh, <laughs> but you can see in practical policy making that what Jeffrey's talking about is taking place. Just to give you an example, uh, I'm in the middle of a project with a Canadian scholar on the Arctic and international security. Asian countries, led by China, but by no means exclusively, are now increasingly interested in the Arctic as a commercial route because of the accelerating melting of the ice. Climate change, which is now a global issue, and and the Biden administration, I think, is right to emphasize it because of the threat it poses to everyone, is very much tied to what is happening in the Arctic because all these systems are interconnected, as uh, specialists in uh, the weather and will tell you. Third, the Arctic has become a plus dachm. I mean, many of the people writing about the Arctic will tell you that the Russian uh, military buildup on the Arctic is largely defensive. That's not true. As a matter of fact, the Russians are now putting in nuclear weapons in the Arctic, air-based nuclear weapons that to target, and more sea-based weapons to target the United States. So the Arctic has become militarized as well as being a source of environmental degradation and a threat to global environmental security. And beyond that, the uh, Arctic is also, of course, potentially a great uh, route for intercontinental commerce although it has not lived up to its billing. We also are seeing increasing uh, competition for bases and uh, trade in the Indian Ocean. Very few people picked up on the fact, uh, Jeffrey I'm sure did though, although this happened after his book came out, that the Russians in November acquired a base in Sudan. And if you look at what they're doing in Myanmar, they're doing the, following the same playbook, playbook. I think they want a base in Myanmar. They want to play in the Indian Ocean. The Indian Navy is now increasingly, and the Indian government, is increasingly apprehensive about all of China's aims altogether, but very much about Chinese maritime policy in the Indian Ocean. And the Iran-China agreement adds fuel to that fire because there's a widespread supposition that there's a base hidden in the document somewhere, or there's a secret codicil allowing for China to have bases in Iran. The uh, U.S. Navy just reported that uh, the Chinese base in Djibouti is now capable of hosting an aircraft carrier. And that, of course, sends tremors throughout the entire U.S. Navy. So all these issues have come together in ways that Mackinder, Mahan, and Speakman foresaw, but could not foresee in detail, particularly the environmental consequences, which nobody 120 years ago was thinking about. That's very true. All right. Thank you, Stephen. So I'll move on to the next point, and I'm not going to read. I have a very long quote here, and I realize now that it's very long, but it's more about navalism. 
So the second main influence spreading maritime competition between China, Russia, and India is the three nations' pursuit of great power status. Subsequently, this drive for more international prestige has resulted in growing investments in strategic instruments of national power, namely the Navy. This in turn has resulted in a dynamic of heightened navalism and naval competition across maritime Eurasia. I'll just read a little bit more because it's a very long quote. Uh, navalism is a concept that has long been in our lexicon, but is infrequently applied today. As the historian Craig Simmons writes, and I quote, navalists are generally concerned with image, honor, prestige, and diplomatic clout. To them, a naval fleet was physical evidence of national adulthood. So I'll stop there because um, it, there's just so much to say, Jeffrey. This book is just wonderful. I'll, I'll let you maybe make some comments if you would. Yeah, no, absolutely. So the thinking behind this is that, and the concern furthermore, is that as countries, uh, i.e. China, India, the United States, Russia, increase their investments um, in naval development, that could be ships and personnel, um, that could be investing in naval and coastal defense technologies, uh, cyber capacities, and then also uh, increased general naval activity, naval diplomacy and exercises. And, and the broadening concern is that that then spills over into kind of heightened um, and more proactive and aggressive behavior, especially in spaces that are more confined and constrained. And we've seen this uh, certainly with certain Russian behavior in the Black Sea, for example, in the Mediterranean. Uh, we've also seen kind of um, activity between the Chinese and the United States in the South China Sea. Obviously, the United States has been big about the freedom of navigation operations. In addition to that, we, we saw an incident um, last, uh, last fall, I think it was, or last summer, I should say, uh, when the Russians, um, I think they were hosting an exercise, Operation Shield, uh, where they dipped into the United States EEZs uh, and were very aggressive towards uh, US um, fishermen. Anyway, so it's all to say the concern is that as you have more naval activity, more ships on the high seas, there's just a greater likelihood of tensions rising. Sure. And the further concern within that is that could it escalate into something else? And let's hope it doesn't, uh, certainly, but I hmm. think uh, there is growing concern uh, across many, many domains and many regions. Excellent. Thank you, Jeffrey. Stephen. Well, let me build on that. What we have seen in the last decade or so is, to be blunt, an encroachment on international law and freedom of the seas and on the UNCLOS Treaty. Let's take examples. First of all, Russia in uh, 2007, in, in a way that sort of reminds people, you know, uh, I claim all this territory for the Kingdom of Spain under Columbus, claimed vast amounts of the Arctic Ocean and the landmass there for Russia. They then submitted a request to UNCLOS to ratify it. And contrary to a lot of uh, Western opinion, from the beginning, Russian uh, policy uh, elites have been arguing about militarizing this. They want to claim this huge amount of Arctic territory for themselves and close it. I mean, they, Russia thinks in terms of closed or seas or in Latin, mare closes. 
second, in 2014, the UN approved Russia's claim to the Sea of Akhotsk on the Pacific coast of Russia, with, leading to Japan. No sooner did this happen than the Russians closed the Sea of Akhotsk, which is, and said explicitly, this is going to be a precedent for the Arctic, so that if the UN recognizes our claims in the Arctic, we're going to close all that area. They then imposed a tariff on commercial vessels going through the northern sea route of the Arctic. All these are precedents because they're uncontested. They've done this, nobody has said anything, and that creates a baseline for the future. Other states are learning. Now, besides Russia, China has been doing this, as Jeffrey said, in the South China Sea, but also in the East China Sea, uh, with the disputed islands with Japan, the Senkakus in Japan, uh, as they're called. So you have East China Sea, South China Sea, and South China Sea is a particularly dangerous place. But the, the interesting thing here is that the claims the Chinese make about the South China Sea, that it's a closed sea, it's ours, and so on, we have the right to determine who does what here, they oppose in the Arctic. And they're on record as this. <laughs> and the Russians' position on the South China Sea used to be uh, closer to what the Chinese position is in the Arctic. That should be open to everybody. Third, Turkey, in an act of force majeure, 2019, seizes waters that Cyprus claims as its EEZ, puts it uh, military vessels and then starts drilling for gas or, and oil. They then cook up this treaty with the desperate government of Libya, who is will sign anything if somebody will be their friend, to create a, an expanded Turkish EEZ that basically includes all the Greek islands, or most of them leading to a renewed upsurge of tension with Greece and in defense of this earlier incursion. And basically the, the Turkish ad, its attitude is, if you don't like it, do something about it. And no one is going to challenge the Turkish Navy in the Mediterranean. Hmm. And now we have seen the Russians in 2018 do this in the Kerch Straits. Of course, they seized uh, Ukraine Ukrainian territory in 2014, and the original plan was to cut Ukraine from the coast and seize the entire Ukrainian coast. And now again, they have converted the Black Sea into a uh, almost a, well, what they hope would be an impregnable fortress with nuclear-capable uh, land, sea, and air capabilities there, and have just demonstrated for everybody to see that they intend to keep uh, it that way, and that they are trying to keep NATO out. Meanwhile, NATO is coming back in. So as a result, you have all these incursions into the law of the sea, all of which are precedent setting. And in all cases, where basically states are resorting to force majeure, the reaction is very clear. Five years ago in the United States, very few people took the Arctic seriously. Now, every service has its own Arctic strategy. They're arguing for money in the congressional appropriation process. NATO allies, uh, have discovered the Arctic and now there are major exercises with Norway, Great Britain, the United States, Canada even, uh, taking place about the Arctic. We have brought European allies into uh, challenge China's claims in the South China Sea, and this is going to keep going. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank so, you much. so much. All right. All right. Now, now we'll go, we'll go on. on. There's an There's echo an somewhere. somewhere. All right. All right. In addition, in addition to, to growing economic, economic investments, investments and interlinked security interests across maritime Eurasia, 
China, Russia, and India seek great power status and more international prestige. For Russia and China, this also means challenging the American-dominated world order to suit their respective global interests. Here, the term, and I quote, great power, is defined as a country that demonstrates global structural power or has the ability to shape governance frameworks in the economic, military, and political diplomatic sectors. But for a nation to achieve great power status, a critical component has historically included the buildup and deployment of a blue water navy that can project power and protect interests more fluidly in far-flung corners of the world. In other words, pardon me, in the words of scholars George Moldovsky and William R. Thompson, and I quote, there can be no global system without global reach. Only those disposing of superior navies have, in the modern world, staked out a good claim to world leadership. So we're rolling up, you know, these, I guess, three or four big nations that want to have this global status, this global power status. So that's exactly right that that for countries to understand or to this desire to be a global great power that the, these countries understand they need to have the full uh the full tools of statecraft part of these full tools of statecraft is having a big powerful blue water navy and it's not dissimilar you know i like to harken back to the historical uh you know the the deployment of the u.s great white fleet under teddy roosevelt traversing the globe at, at the, the turn of the 20th century to show here in the United States, we have the capability and the capacity. And, and so I think there's a similar dynamic going on of, of these countries understanding that they need to can increasingly invest in, you know, kind of the big fleet, so to speak. The challenge, however, is that if you look at the case of, of India, for example, it can also be the golden handcuffs. Because of this desire and aspiration, um, to have an aircraft carrier, it means a lot of resources and, and investment. And, and at a time right now, obviously, India is in the news front and center um, of just the great tragedy going on due to COVID. Uh, you know, in all countries, eventually, are going to face this constrained environment, economically, financially constrained environment where governments just can't invest. And so I think for India, as one example, and others having to think about alternative. Uh, naval technologies, naval ships, still investing in the maritime domain, but maybe, hey, we can draw back or, or kind of um, not necessarily focus entirely on having an aircraft carrier, but this cut, cuts both ways. And certainly th this is a real challenge, but I think the aspiration and the desires there, despite the real obstacles that Russia, for example, has faced, uh, but even in the case of Russia, really interesting, and again, they've had tragic instances on the high seas uh, with its submarines, but they continue to invest significantly in their submarine capabilities. So one of the statistics I like to cite is that they currently have, I think, something uh, to the effect of six uh, different classes of submarines under development. And that compares to the United States where we just have one, um, one class of submarine under development. So they recognize that their subs are very powerful, and this is a legacy of the Soviet era, uh, and they can really be effective, um, you know, in a, in a larger, wider swath compared to just having an aircraft carrier, uh, which they've they've run into real significant challenges with. Great. All right, Stephen. 
unmute, Stephen. Okay. Stephen, unmute. Yeah, thanks. Okay. So uh, this is what's happening across the globe because we now see major investments in navies and in power projection. Jeff just talked about Russian submarines, but it's not just submarines in the Russian case. There's been a tendency in the West to believe that Russia is finds it difficult to do power projection, at least outside of the boundaries of the former Soviet Union. While it is difficult, it is by no means impossible, and they are determined to do more of the same and build up their capabilities or find innovative capabilities for doing so. I alluded to the base in Sudan. Now, from the U.S. point of view, there is no earthly reason why Russia needs a base in Sudan. But from the Russian point of view, it is part of a program, and I've written about this elsewhere, with, of commitment to a global power projection capability and program, even if they have to do so slowly and build block by block. Uh, of capabilities to do so. In China's case, we see enormous expanses of uh, expansion of capabilities and investment in the Navy. Uh, China is trying to do something that has been, in a sense, historically uh, never done before. That is to be number one Navy and Navy number one land power. Maybe the United States and, and before that, the Roman Empire uh, were examples. But historically, uh, it, they have not gone together. Uh, so we're going to see a very interesting factor take place. And what's more, we're going to see a further interpenetration of maritime and terrestrial warfare. We see this now already in Ukraine with the buildup the Russians have just uh, undertaken and which is going to stay there for some time, uh, if, if not indefinitely. We are seeing this, I would suggest, in regard to maybe what China's probes against India. And we're certainly going to see this uh, if China does get a base in the Middle East, because they're the, they'll be working with their, their friends or allies, if you want to call them that, in terms of projecting power into that region. So we need to be aware of this. Furthermore, drones are going to change everything in terms of maritime warfare. Sure because as we have seen, drones can stop an army in its tracks. We saw this last year in Libya, Nagorno-Karabakh, and Syria. The same thing is going to happen at sea because you can use drones to paralyze a superior fleet that's a threat to you. So now nations are trying to buy drones and counter drones, or drones that counter drones, uh, in order to enable them to project maritime power abroad. All right, that's very excellent. Now we have just one more point uh, with this in this first segment, which I'd like to read again, the last quote in this segment. So today, a rise in maritime trade and geoeconomics places greater emphasis on securing the SLOCs, I guess you would call them SLOCs, so that ships are not affected by either non-state actor threats, such as piracy and terrorism, or state-centered threats from a failing or collapsed state. At the same time, more naval ships on the high seas in an age of rising navalism complicate the security dynamic across maritime Eurasia, raising the possibility for unintentional conflict, both the high north and Eurasia's southern blue water highways through narrow choke points, such as the Bab al-Mandab and the Straits of Malacca, 
will continue to feature prominently in each country's focused maritime strategy. Additionally, access to basing or logistics installation and maritime replenishment hubs will grow significantly as China, India, and Russia enhance their blue water capabilities and seek to secure more of maritime Asia. And I'll let Jeffrey then finish on these concluding remarks. So, you know, one of the, the elements that, that I tried to push for is the, indeed, the securing of the sea lanes of communication. And again, it fits into this larger picture of first, the geoeconomic, maritime geoeconomic interest that I focus on comes front and center. But thereafter, there's a necessity to secure those interests. And, and one of the examples I like to cite goes back to uh, 2011 and the overthrow of Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, where the, the Chinese had an estimated, I want to say around 30,000 uh, foreign nationals that were living and working in Libya. And when the government fell, they had a grave dilemma on their hands. How do we get 30 some thousand uh, people out of the country very quickly and safely? You can't fly them out. And, and the Chinese were left rather flat footed uh, of having to go to the Greek government uh, to rent ships, to then bring them in, to take them out. But since that moment, uh, the Chinese have said, we can't rely upon anybody else. We need to have some sort of forward presence. And in that case, uh, as we all know, as often discussed, the base in Djibouti being very significant. And now this gives the Chinese an ability and a base and logistics and maintenance hub so that if anything ever happens, um, in, you know, in, in Europe, for example, in North Africa, there's a greater ability to get there very quickly. And so you're seeing, you know, this kind of increased interest. At the same time, I also like to put into perspective for, for people that the Chinese have established one base in Djibouti, uh, which is very important. The Japanese, very significant too, establishing their first base since the Second World War. But it's one base. And if you look at the United States presence, we have approximately 500 plus uh, main operating bases. Again, it depends on how you define what a base is. Is it a cooperative security location? Is it a forward staging post? Um, or is it a main operating base? Nonetheless, we have approximately 500 plus bases and that fluctuates from year to year. So clearly the United States presence is not going anywhere anytime soon. But we, like everybody else, and we're already starting to see this, face difficult questions about <clears throat> maintaining these very expensive bases around the globe. And then also asking the question of, if something, some sort of conflict were to break out, are we prepared and ready to go fight in that conflict? And after two, two decades of wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, we know that the population domestically is very weary of perhaps going back to war. So this, you know, it's a really tough dynamic, but equally important because the Chinese, their investments are not going to abate anytime soon, although they certainly fluctuate, um, but they're going to have to secure their interests like any country might. Certainly. Thank you so much. Stephen, we'll conclude as your concluding remarks on segment one. Well, you get back to choke points. There are, these are crucial waterways and they've historically been areas of conflict. Uh, Bab el-Mandab is one, Suez Canal is another, Straits of Malacca is the third. The Straits in uh, in the Bosphorus are fourth, and uh, we can uh, easily envisage 
other areas uh, if we take the time to look at the map in detail. All these areas are right now areas of intense strategic interest. Everybody's uncle is now building military capabilities in the Horn of Africa, including Turkey, whom we have not talked about. Turkey is also trying to, uh, or at least the government, the, the president of Turkey, Erdogan, is talking about building a canal uh, that would bypass the straits. It means upending the Treaty of Montreal. It will cause, if, it gets, if this goes through, and it's not at all clear that it will, but if it goes through, it will create an enormous international uh, free-for-all uh, to, to decide the regime that will operate with regard to the Black Sea Straits. Suez Canal, we all know. I mean, it's historically an area, uh, and we even have a war named Suez in 1956, or the Suez Crisis back then. And the same is true uh, in Northeast Asia, for example. Uh, give you an example. In the 2013, Russia and China conducted a maritime exercise uh, off the coast, off their coasts. Immediately thereafter, the Chinese Navy circumnavigated Japan, going through uh, the Sea of Japan and so and around the La Perouse Strait and so on. The minute this happened, the Russian Navy signed up to do maneuvers with Japan in order to remind the Chinese that uh, you know uh, this is uh, this is our territory. Uh, the example I gave you before of the Sea of Okhotsk, which for Russia is a precedent, uh, you can consider it a choke point because uh, it guards the entrance to uh, the Russian uh, submarine uh, nuclear bases there uh, and the Kuril Islands serve in this way. So all these areas are areas of intense strategic focus and concentration by governments. And this, given the trends that Jeffrey and I have outlined here and that he talks about so ably in his book, this is going to increase. And you're going to see it in, in uh, budgets for all the countries that are interested. Thank you. Thank you so much, gentlemen. This concludes the first segment, and I look forward to speaking with you in the second segment. Thank you. Welcome back to segment two of our podcast with Dr. Jeffrey Gresh and Dr. Stephen Blank. Welcome, gentlemen. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for participating. Um, we're in segment two then, which will be about maritime Europe, the Mediterranean, the Black Sea and the Baltic. And uh, I have, of course, we'll continue our, our format as we have done in the first segment. I have a few quotes from uh, Dr. Jeffrey Gresh's excellent book. Uh, that I'd like to do, and then we'll continue the same format and then bring a discussion around. So Mahan stressed six main attributes that influence sea power and how great powers can use the sea to influence world affairs, achieve great power status, as we've discussed in the first segment, and thus affect the course of history. Number one, geographical position. Number two, physical conformation. Three, extent of territory four, size of population, 
five national character. Now, Eurasia's sea lanes of communication and other vital waterways. Its vast maritime regions, for example, include some of the world's most important strategic maritime choke points. The Danish Straits, as we were talking about earlier, the English Channel, the Strait of Gibraltar, the Bosphorus, the Suez Canal, the Bab al-Mandab, the Strait of Hormuz, and the Strait of Malacca, and finally the Bering Strait. So I'd like to bring up this discussion about um, how these six attributes of, of power then influence uh, sea power. And we've sort of touched about in the first segment, but I'm sure, Jeffrey, you have so many interesting uh, things to tell us from your very excellent book. So it's a good way to start out with with Mahan, uh, you know, and I think many of his elements certainly apply. Uh, I think also some don't apply, especially when he talks about colonial outposts and the like. Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly, as we discussed just briefly um, in the first segment about base politics being always, you know, historically very important. Russia is a really fascinating case, if we can start there, if we're thinking about maritime Europe, uh, in the sense that it's a continental power and, and it's it's historically struggled, although it had, you know, blips of uh, during Peter the Great of, of really trying to uh, push into the maritime space. But as we know, it, it is in, you know, similar to many Eurasian continental powers is torn between looking inward uh, versus looking outward into the saltwater domain. All of that said, I think, uh, you know, and as Stephen alluded to uh, during segment one, two, 2014 was a very significant year for Russia specifically, especially from a geographic standpoint. Taking over Crimea, um, reinforcing, expanding its, its naval presence uh, in the Black Sea essentially is solidified uh, or monopolized its its maritime um, power that then enabled it to, to catapult into the Mediterranean. And then, as Stephen noted, too, uh, establishing a base in the Red Sea was very significant um, and, and pretty fascinating. Nevertheless, you know, that event really changed and we've seen, you know, significant changes since then. Uh, and the greater naval activity, uh, you know, in Russia being in Syria, supporting the Assad regime, uh, reinforce, it's had a long history with that of Syria, as we know, but reinforcing, expanding, and kind of making a more permanent presence in Syria will have lasting consequences. We're already seeing it, uh, you know, as, as we talk briefly about the Eastern Med, about uh, uh, oil and gas exploration in the okay. Eastern Mediterranean, the EEZs of Cyprus. So now, you know, almost overnight, Russia has become more of a, a, an important and significant maritime player, um, you know, getting at this point of, of the importance of geography. Now, the other, you know, we didn't, and I talk about it in the book, is is the school, the Genecon, right? The young school. And, and I think Russia too is, is, is applying a certain element of this maritime strategy of using these smaller maneuverable forces, again, in the case of, of investing in its submarine class um, it, it to, to really be effective. Uh, so, you know, investing in all types of classes of vessels uh, and submarines for that matter, but then using these stealth forms uh, rather effectively to kind of project, to, to gather intelligence, uh, it really shifting the dynamic of, of the Black Sea and the Mediterranean in particular. All right, Stephen? 
the use of the term the Genecole in uh, is is very interesting because if you study Russian maritime history and particularly Soviet, there's a constant debate between those who want the big navy, the, the ocean-going navy, the global power projection, Peter the Great, Stalin for a while, uh, and those who say, look, you know, this is just simply beyond our capabilities. What we really need, and what we all we need, is a navy that can defend the coastline and our vital interests. And so on, and that, and, and that uh, comes out of the French Jean Ecole debates in, in, the, in the French naval history, which is a big question because of the challenges they were facing with England. But it also plays into Russia and became important as the Soviets in the United States faced off. Uh, the decision was made under Brezhnev to go for the global power projection and to threaten the United States with a global navy with the submarine capabilities. And submarine capability remains a strength of the Russian maritime uh, sector to this day. They have a lot of trouble, as everybody knows, building and finishing capital ships. They've come up, however, with a solution that borrows a lot, as Jeffrey said, from the Jean Ecole, but retains the emphasis on power projection. On the one hand, their submarines are still a uh, subject a figure of an area of excellence in the Russian defense sector and those submarines are being equipped as are smaller multi-modular capital ships small frigates for example with capabilities that are dual use they are either nuclear they can be nuclear or they can be conventional and they are being used along with private <clears throat> private armies proxies um, the whole whole state security policy, energy, diplomacy, and so on, to project power abroad. It is a power projection strategy on the cheap, if you like, and it mm -hmm. is attempts by Russia, and Putin has talked about this, to do what they call an asymmetric and, and frankly innovative strategy. The, years ago, there used to be a commercial in the car rental business with Avis. We're only number two. We have to try harder. <laughs> Excellent. I'm, I'm, old Excellent. To, I'm old enough to remember this. The point <laughs> is uh, that Russia being number two has to try harder. Everybody else can build big capital ships and spend lots and lots of money. The Russians don't have it. They have to think. And therefore, they, they've come up with this innovative approach to power projection. And take the examples we've been talking about, um, segment one, which we'll talk about here base in Sudan. They've been angling for bases in the Middle East beyond Syria. Sudan is now the second. They clearly wanted a base in Iran. They had use of one for a while. That became politically problematic. But they are looking for others. They've made no bones about this. They want a base in the they wanted bases in the Balkans. They want a base in Egypt. If they could get into Libya, they would want one there. Uh, there's been talk about Algeria. Uh, and so on. All right. But Let, let's they have a base on. now in Venezuela. They have access to air bases in Venezuela. But again, why? To challenge the United States in the Caribbean. Sure. With this right. innovative strategy, which goes from conventional to nuclear. All right. Let, let's keep moving because there's so much we could say, and, and you, you have such great knowledge, Stephen. And and I'm so happy you're you're on board with us again today. So let's go on to the next quote, and and we can build on on some of these. Uh, 
know, extracts that I've taken from Jeffrey's book. So after a several decades long lull since the end of the Cold War, Russia appears more menacing and arguably resurgent. And most of this resurgence is taking place at sea along its southern and northern maritime borders in the Black and the Baltic Seas. It is as if Russia hit a long pause button in the 1990s and has now roared back, helped in part by the booming oil prices of the early 2000s, which enriched its coffers once again. Certainly Russia has challenging days ahead, both domestically and financially. But recently re-elected President Putin desires to set Russia on a stronger course towards re-establishing the nation as a great power after close to three decades of subjugation under a Western-dominated world system. Or in the words of the Russian scholars Pyotr Shedovsky and Efrem Ostrovsky, to create a new image of Russia means to participate in the ongoing remaking of the world and to execute velvet revenge after the defeat of our country in the Third World War, the Cold War. Jeffrey, I'd really like to get your take on this. Is, this is a fascinating uh, quote. Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there, to say the least. <laughs> uh, you know, a couple of points. Um, first is Russia has absolutely taken advantage of the perceived void that the United States is creating increasingly in Southwest Asia or the Middle East. And certainly, again, to build upon, you know, comments I made just moments ago about Syria being very critical. And, you know, if you look at maps, uh, you know, in addition to the maritime space, um, Tartus, Latakia, but also establishing anti-access area denial capabilities. And you see these kind of rings of circles um, that supporting the, the Caspian fleet, for example, um, it, and and so Russia has really pushed down, and you've seen just in the last year or so increased relations and ties between Egypt and Russia. Stephen pointed out the base in Sudan. It's being much more um, proactive and engaged across the Gulf. Again, you know, it has the energy, technology, and the the, the knowledge capital, if you will, when it comes to oil and gas exploration, especially offshore. And so it's trying to leverage that uh, and also seeing areas where because the United States, uh, our, our focus has um, been distracted, to say the least, uh, domestically, but also, I think, on the international stage. Now, may, maybe that'll change, but I think um, it's seen as, as well as China, for that matter, too. But so Russia is taking advantage. Um, and 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 I think that then is the spilling over and it again dates back to, um, you know, 2014, the takeover of Crimea. But also, as Stephen pointed out, there are these historic ties with Libya or with Egypt, uh, you know, going back to the Arab national era. And so it's it's trying to do much more to be engaged. Uh, it sees real rich opportunities. Now, when it comes to the north, and we can talk a lot more. I think we'll talk more about the Arctic. But even just initially in the Baltic, um, the, the the one of the controversial projects right now, the Nord Stream Two project. Uh, you know, this, this, there are two ways to get out oil and gas. One is via pipeline, and one is via the sea. And so connecting um, Europe increasingly to Russia's energy resources is very controversial because we know what they've done to Ukraine previously, to Belarus threatening to shut off, shut down pipelines. 
And so Europe, Europe has always been in, you know, kind of a, a difficult dilemma when it comes to energy security. Now, I think perhaps with the rise of the green parties, with the rise of really increased understanding of, of climate change and how we need to uh, decrease our footprint and our reliance on oil and gas, uh, you're seeing beginning innovation to see how we can move away from dependence on, on Russia, oil and gas. But I think that's very hard. And furthermore, not for tomorrow uh, anyway, if I may. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and furthermore, uh, you know, the Baltic is a very tiny sea um, and Russia has used that to develop its its kind of domain awareness, its capabilities there. Uh, and, and seeing this, this puts the Nordic countries, Denmark specifically, much, you know, at, at angst, seeing increased submarine again activity. Uh, there's right. an incident a couple of years ago about, um, you know, Russian subs in, in within territorial seas. Uh, so I, you know, I, I understand and appreciate why uh, Neur- Europe is, is nervous uh, at some level and concerned about yes. you know activity and that's demonstrated by what just in the last couple of weeks uh the buildup of forces on ukraine's borders sending in the caspian fleet i think there are 14 vessels or so um that arrived to just showing you know perhaps mm-hmm. it's just bluster um but i think russia also likes to likes the bluster likes to swagger and to show when it hosts these exercises um, right. And it's hosted many of them to kind of put Europe Europe on notice. Thank you, Jeffrey. Stephen? The uh, Russian take here, as Jeff has, Jeffrey's talked about, shows the extent of their commitment towards projecting power well beyond their borders and the innovative approach. Just to give you an example, in the recent Ukraine crisis, uh, they have done something quite unprecedented in Russian Federation history. Two things, actually. One, they sent all their submarines out at once, which is any naval command will tell you. It's a very impressive logistical fleet. In order so that when NATO does its exercises, those submarines would not be traceable. Hmm. Second, for the first time in Russian history, they completed the Volgodon Canal, which does allow them to transfer fleets between the Caspian and the Black Sea, and that's what they've done. Right. Uh, I wrote years ago, their strategy at the time, when they were broke, was that uh, the Arctic fleet, the Northern fleet, and the Pacific fleet would come to each other's rescue in a contingency. They, they were, to use a naval term, swing fleets that would mm-hmm. swing to the other's assistance. But at the same time, what we also see, apart from innovation, is also considerable traditionalism. Let me give you an example. Mm-hmm. In the Arctic, I mentioned in the first segment that they have, they're deploying air-based, as they, the Arctic has always had the, second, the submarine-based nuclear capability, but they're also now deploying an air-based capability and a surface vessel nuclear capability against the United States. That according to a paper that came out last year, that's been a requirement from for the, for the Soviet Navy in the 80s. It couldn't be built in the 90s in the first decade of this century because they didn't have the means to do it. But the threat assessment and the procurement requirements stayed throughout. Now that they have the money and that they have built up this big defense infrastructure in the Arctic, 
that was preparatory to that in order to make sure they could build this new network and uh, it would be safe. They are building it and going forward, continuing a previous Soviet force requirement. So you got you have a unique blend of the traditional and the innovative in the Russian naval program. Now, uh, it's also true, uh, you know, in the Caspian Sea, that fleet clearly has been able to enforce political outcomes that the Russians wanted. The Treaty of uh, 2018 among the littoral states, which took an awful long time to negotiate, is partly due to the fact that the Russians have superior naval power there and nobody's going to challenge them. So what we see here is a sophisticated understanding of maritime military capability, the integration of land, air, cyber and electronic warfare capabilities and information uh, in that, and the use of that to advance Russia political uh, interests. Uh, the base in Sudan is an example. The bases uh, in the base in Syria is an example. Venezuela is also they, 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 you also have energy. So what we see is a strategy, which is a whole of government strategy. We talk about that. Anybody living in Washington D.C. knows that a whole of government strategy is a, is this pleasant fantasy that intellectuals engage in. Uh, and say it would be very nice if we had it, but that is almost, it is virtually impossible to get it in the United States for a, a host of reasons. But that's what the Russians are doing. And, and the push that I think is taking place, and I think that Jeffrey would agree, that we now see in the Indian Ocean, with Sudan being the first, is an example of the same thing. Now. Uh, I would argue in this case that people should keep an eye out for what's going to happen with Iran. A couple of things of importance. The Sino-Iranian agreement, and China, of course, is a major naval player as well. The Sino-Iranian agreement, many people think is going to lead to a Chinese base of some sort or some sort of appearance of Chinese maritime power in the Persian Gulf. Given the alliance between Russia and China that we now see, and I do believe it's an alliance de facto, mm -hmm. we are likely to see Russia participate in some form in that. So that's got something you have to keep your eye on. And also, I think that the Russians will be trying to move further in the Indian Ocean to have a second base if they can. They've And they've always been interested in uh, Cameron Bay. I mean, the Vietnamese won't give it to them. But mm -hmm. again, these are areas that have to be monitored to see uh, the expansion of the kind of navalism and naval power projection that is part of a whole of government policy uh, in these countries. All right, let's let's go to our last uh, quote here from Jeffrey's book. China is still a relative newcomer to Europe geoeconomically. It has already made significant maritime and shipping route investments throughout the Baltic and the Black Sea that tie it into its Belt and Road Initiative. This may one day set Russia and China on a collision course, especially if Chinese economic investments need to be secured or foreign nationals need to be rescued in Ukraine or Georgia. But for the time being, the two nations appear in sync and cooperating in rather significant ways. Some have also viewed this emerging cooperation as threatening to either US or NATO interests further 
producing a distressing regional security situation, which is basically what, what Stephen was just telling us. So let's finish up our second segment here, Jeffrey. So the way I like to think about historically, right, in all these countries have such deep historical perspectives that sometimes, you know, Americans, uh, we lack. Uh, but one of the great analogies that I've heard when it comes to Sino-Russian relations is compared to that of a classical fugue, right? So in a fugue, the, the melody at, at a certain point comes together, <clears throat> stays together, and then departs, and so on and so forth. And, and I agree, I think we're at a moment where uh, China and Russia are certainly more aligned than they've ever been before in, in modern history in the shared kind of desire to undermine the United States, uh, to push it to the side, and, and to try to kind of reassert itself on the international stage. Now, when it comes to Chinese investment across maritime Europe, in this case, if we had a map, if we could show, uh, looking mm -hmm. at just the port uh, investments, uh, and this lines all of Western Europe uh, from the North and the Baltic. One of the ports that comes to mind initially is that of Seebrugge, uh, in, in Belgium, and, and my understanding is that it's used as kind of a, uh, a wayward point, bringing in natural gas from the Arctic uh, and then, you know, dividing into multiple ships and then sending it off. And you can look across of, and it's a very smart investment. Again, it's investment, it's geoeconomic investment. It makes good sense. We'll buy a 20% stake in a port or 40% stake in a port and then over time, if the right conditions prevail, will increase that percentage or stake to above 50%, thus giving a you know majority shareholder investment in a port, which then changes the dynamic. And so I think sure. frequently we cite Piraeus in Greece, and I had you mm -hmm. know through writing the book, I had the chance to travel to Piraeus. It was extraordinary to see um, just you know the size and scope and the ability for China uh, to really. Uh, expand its operations and they're under you know certain greater uh, scrutiny I think because of the increased um, publicity but nevertheless kind of the long-term thinking uh, of pushing out in this case uh, their Greek uh, ship repairers many families been going back decades uh, and, and the thinking at, at the time at least was that Costco, who owns and runs and operates the, the port, will kind of squeeze them out over time and then bring in their own people. Uh, they're increasing, you know, the cost to come visit a sh uh, for a ship to offload, etc. So then ships are beginning to question, well, is it really worth my bottom line to come into the port? And so you see how slowly but surely you know, mm -hmm. taking a greater control at stake in a particular port. We see, we haven't talked a lot about Israel. Israel is another fascinating case. Uh, I had a great opportunity to go and visit Haifa port, seeing, um, yeah, and that's caused great controversy for the United States and put Israel under pressure too, because it sees good economic relationship with China uh, and vice versa. China sees great uh, potential in Israel. So all these, you know, I think, and there's been a lot of good reports in the last year, certainly I, I go into depth too, about how these ports, um, they, they, are, they make good economic sense. And this is enabling uh, China to really have a much stronger foothold in, in a lot of maritime Europe. And, and Greece, you know, again, they cite the fact that they really, as we know, have faced enormous economic and financial struggles. 
in the past decade, certainly post 2008. Uh, and the Chinese were there to lend a sort of helping hand. And the and the Greek government is is very aware and attuned to this, that no one else, you know, kind of helped them out in the same way. Uh, and so they're, they're, that's really helped to uh, bolster the relationship and why Greece has had, you know, a, a favorable relationship with China. Well, thank you so much. Stephen, you're concluding marks for segment segment two. Well, th this is the, gets back to the whole of government idea. Same thing China's doing. China has vastly more resources to do this than Russia, and they are doing it, you know, all over all over the, the world, really. Uh, I, I, I'm sure Jeffrey sees it every day. I get God knows how many messages about China's influence in Latin America, Africa, Europe, you know, not to mention East Asia, Central Asia, and the Russo-Chinese alliance, which a lot of people don't believe exists, uh, and so on and so forth. And what you see is a very sophisticated Chinese strategy, uh, whereby economics and defense move hand in hand, or where economics precedes the fact in Africa, they've been involved, for example, for decades, going back to Mao yes. Zedong. But it's only recently that the, the people have, in the Chinese government, have actually followed through on policies that look like maritime power projection, beyond something beyond large-scale trade and investment, which opens the door for you and creates that. And, you know, sure. the Russians learned from that. I mean, the Sudan base is an example of how you can, you know, you do political favors and economic favors for a country until they become dependent on you. And then they, you, you say, well, you know, I, I need some, I need a, a compensation here. How about a naval base? You know, uh, same thing. Uh, the uh, Chinese drive is going to continue for at least another decade or so. Uh, whatever domestic problems there are in China, and there are plenty, uh, this is not going to stop. It's uh, the Belt and Road is, a, you know, the sort of framework for, that has been created to uh, encompass all this economic investment. But the, with the economic investment goes the whole idea of smart cities, of cyber surveillance and information capability enhancement. Uh, that happens behind the scenes. It's not given a lot of publicity, but it's an integral part of the Chinese strategy, and it creates permanent dependencies All or right. yeah yeah we'll, we'll end the second we'll have whenever we have another segment so this is so exciting and so much to say thank you again gentlemen for joining me on segment two we'll move on then to segment three okay Welcome back to the third segment of our interview with Dr. Jeffrey Gresh and Dr. Stephen Blank. Now, this last segment, I'd like to address future trend lines in the Arctic, the Indo-Pacific, the role of the US, NATO, and the EU. There's so much to say, but I must say uh, to our audience that they just have to buy Jeffrey's book. 
uh, otherwise they'll never get around to reading the whole story of all of these uh, elements that we're trying to squish into such a very uh, small time frame. And thank you again, Jeffrey and, and Stephen for joining me today. Thanks very much. Thank you for having us. Thank, thank you so much. Uh, so I'm gonna read a few quotes and then, and then we'll pick up our discussion. Since the end of the Cold War, the United States has ruled the waves and the international order that came with it. Though the United States still remains the dominant world military and naval power, the perception is that the United States is on the wane and there is a void to be filled by Eurasia's rising powers, or at the least, China and Russia hope to undermine and rewrite the US-led world order. The three continental powers examined here, China, Russia, and India, aspire to achieve great power status and the ability to influence or sway world politics. Each power also recognizes the maritime might and a blue water navy are two key ingredients to achieving this goal. Now, Russia's overall Arctic strategy can be summarized as follows. First, to demonstrate sovereignty over the Arctic zone of the Russian Federation. And second, to protect its economic interests in the high north. And third, to demonstrate that Russia retains its great power status and has world-class military capabilities. Russia increasingly sees a rising competition with other world powers and wants to ensure that in regions such as the Arctic, it can dominate or control the space. Russia is also concerned about NATO's increased Arctic efforts. The Duma speaker, Sergei Narishkin, went so far as to say, to call NATO, and I quote, a cancerous tumor at the heart of Europe. So I know we've sort of discussed a little bit on the Arctic, but since, you know, this is the top of the world and, and probably, as you mentioned so aptly, Jeffrey, in previous segments that, you know, climate change was not in the picture uh, many years ago and when policy was being made. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the Arctic. Yeah, th there's certainly many things to add. So the first thing I, I would start with is uh, Russia's interest, as you, as I, you know, alluded to and expand of, upon. Of course, there's something like 90% of uh, Russia's gas reserves that are currently untapped in the Arctic. In addition to that, there's 60% of its uh, oil reserves. Furthermore, there's approximately 240 different fish, uh, seafood species. As we know, you know, we're uh, certainly in, in the United States where I grew up in New England, big cod family or haddock. Uh, and these are cold water fish. And as the water's uh, you know, warm, the fish are moving further and further north and into the Arctic. And now most, most of the Arctic remains under an ice cap um, currently, but over time, the central Arctic zone uh, this, and this is something the Arctic Council is already engaged with trying to figure out how do we divide up the fisheries. And, and as I, I point out too, you know, just the consumption of fish uh, in East Asia among many Asian states is, is huge. Uh, on top of the fact of, you know, we read a lot about the Chinese investment in, in its industrial fishing fleets. Uh, so fishing, oil and gas, and on top of that, the Russians have a huge amount of natural uh, minerals, um, platinum, diamonds, um, nickel, uh, other uh, vital uh, minerals that have yet to be really untapped. So it has a real economic interest uh, and it controls, you know, as Stephen pointed out, 
um, just from a geographic perspective. So clearly Russia, it has its eye towards developing and, and exporting anything and everything it can. And we've already seen in the past you know, couple of years, a tripling of the shipments, um, shipping traffic. And last year in 2020, I think um, it was open, the Northern Sea Route, I should say, is open yes. for the most amount of time we've seen it 80 plus days. Uh, it's really becoming an, an increasingly viable option. Now, it's not to say it's going to be open year-round no. anytime not soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we have to look to the future. And by, you know, many scientists are, are, are become surprised at how much faster the ice is melting. Now, when it comes to, you know, the other point I want to add when it comes to NATO, NATO indeed, and I was surprised to learn this, does not have an official Arctic policy. Now, now I hear that it is in the works, um, and that I guess my understanding, maybe Stephen can speak more on this uh, during the upcoming uh, NATO summit in the mm-hmm. summer. I think there's there's going to be a push to finalize what the Arctic strategy is. Uh, but this is all happening while Russia is developing more assets. I think uh, something to the extent of, of 16, um, 16 deep water ports that that it's investing in, 13 airfields, uh, in addition to opening 10 search and rescue stations, along with, as Stephen pointed out previously, 10 air defense radar stations across its Arctic periphery. So it it has a lot to gain and the United States is, is moving, but you know, when it comes to when we haven't talked a lot about the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which the United States is not party to, but we yes. uphold nonetheless. Uh, but there's some articles in there that 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 will be a, a point of contention um, mm-hmm. between potentially Russia and China. And I th- think about Article 234 that gets it has to do with uh, ice covered waters of how you define that. Uh, that could mm-hmm. be a potential wedge down the road. Uh, on top of the United States and Canada having a disagreement on uh, the Northwest um, Passage, uh, which is more wrought with icebergs and more challenging to uh, traverse. But really, the, the bottom takeaway is is Russia is indeed um, militarizing or securitizing the region, and it's uh, to much angst uh, to NATO and the alliance. All right. Stephen. Well, Je- Jeffrey's covered the entire ballpark. <laughs> but you know, again, the reasons why Russia's interested in the Arctic are, are, as he says, it also is because from a defense point of view, <clears throat> one, it got, the Arctic bases of Russia, Murmansk and Arkhangelsk, uh, and in the Pacific, which near Arctic, Vladivostok, Petropavlovsk, guard the uh, second strike capability of the uh, Russian nuclear arsenal, which are critical, but also because they believe that if America were to attack them, it would be, first of all, through an aerospace attack and the route would be over the Arctic. Uh, that's the shortest route uh, from the United States to, to Russia. So they have a defense motive as well. And uh, everything comes together. As I said in the first segment, in 2007, they claimed all this in the Arctic. Immediately thereafter, if you follow the Russian press, and I have all this, these sources, everybody and his uncle starts claiming not only that they need this for economic purposes, but that there's a defense threat. And gradually, this rhetoric assumes 
the reality it comes to be believed as reality and by mm -hmm. 2014 uh in not only in conjunction with ukraine but on its own the policy i think becomes much more militarized so that's the uh, thing of the arctic for the russians and they believe that it is the treasure trove of the future which will guarantee them their continuation as a great power energy revenues and so forth but it leads them into some very strange positions everybody and his uncle right now is trying to get rid of it is, is trying to move away from energy every day we see headlines i mean general motors going to build electric cars uh signing on to environmental targets for carbon free the russian economy is addicted to energy <laughs> it's not a joke it's a fact no, I know it's it's not like China that has made great strides to go towards clean vehicles, etc. But Russia uh, has not moved that way at all. Has China it? has a monumental pollution problem. Russia does too. But despite all the talk and the fight, despite Putin's fine words last week at the environmental conference, they're not they're not walking the walk, uh, to use mm. another phrase. And uh, mm -hmm. we've seen numerous Jeff Jeff knows this, numerous environmental tragic disasters. Uh, there's a couple of places uh, that are regarded as Chernobyl's in, in being. Just to give you one example of how dangerous this could be. In the last seven or eight years or so, there've been numerous reports of methane gas craters developing in the Russian I've seen Army. those, yeah. I've seen those, yeah. And at the same time, they are trying to build nuclear power plants in the Arctic. <laughs> you put one of those methane gas craters, it explodes and it's near a nuclear power plant, uh, Chernobyl will look like Sunday school. And since this week was the 35th anniversary of Chernobyl, uh, right. this is uh, something to keep in mind. And they're not they're not doing nearly enough to worry about this. It's also the case that there's a great deal of hype. Uh, the world is beginning to move away from hydrocarbons. The Russian economy is built on a wager that hydrocarbons for the next 20 years, at least, at will least, sustain. Yeah. Um, there is a belief that the North Northern Sea Route will become this great intercontinental trading route and mm -hmm. displace the Suez Canal. And the Russian thinking for 150 years has sought mm -hmm. to displace the Suez Canal. <clears throat> it's not happening. Uh, maritime transit still goes largely through the Suez Canal. That, sure. that, and, that we saw. You know, that, yep. that we saw that when it was blocked, right? How many, right. you know, ships were waiting on both sides to go through and, and you can see, you know, how useful it would be uh, to have that uh, northern passage. But it's not, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, as you said. Right. But this is a recurrent phenomenon in world history. I mean, you, remember, you know, we all learned in elementary school, what was Columbus looking for? The trade routes <laughs> to Asia. Right. Uh, right. This is it. Uh, yeah. it's, but it's but it's not. Uh, and as a result, uh, if you look more than carefully at the Arctic, as Jeffrey knows, I mean, you know, there's a great deal going on and it's very important, but there's also a great deal of hype uh, right. as to what's happening. You have to separate the hype from the reality, which is not always easy. But, all right. Let, let, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. 
let's let's go on to our to our last point bef before we go to Jeffrey's recommendations, and I'd like to get both of you to comment on them. I, we hadn't really talked too much about India, and I'd really like to touch on India as our last point before the recommendations. So I'd just like to read again a quote from Jeffrey's book. So since India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi came to power in 2014, he has pushed India toward a growing embrace of its maritime domain. It's partly in reaction to China's rising presence in the Indian Ocean, but it is also part of a larger natural trajectory of India's emergence and desire to become a great power. Though India still has much to achieve and overcome, many analysts and scholars believe that India has arrived on the world stage and its reliance and ability to manage and secure the maritime domain economically, politically, and militarily will be a critical component of its trajectory as articulated by Modi in 2018 at the Shangri-La Dialogue. And I quote, our interests in the region are vast and our engagement is deep. In the Indian Ocean region, our relationships are becoming stronger. We are also helping build economic capabilities and improve maritime security for our friends and partners, end quote. In other words, India places great emphasis on its economic interests, the rule of law, and collective security of the global maritime commons. Uh, Jeffrey. Yeah, so India is indeed uh, a future important player, partner, ally, if you can use that term, uh, certainly for the United States and others, the Europeans, Japan specifically. Um, you know, it, it is, you know, my heart goes out to the Indians currently undergoing such a tragic and devastating moment. I hope, however, from a U.S. perspective, um, you know, it took the U.S. government kind of a little bit to, to step up and, and use vaccine diplomacy um, to help hopefully offset and generate increased goodwill down the road for, for the U.S. partnership, because I, I do believe that India uh, you know, it's called the Indian Ocean for for good reason. Good reason it's yeah. the most significant um, country, and I think over the past decade has grown to appreciate that China's increased presence puts it in a very um, a difficult position, and it sees its traditional historic allies and partners, um, such as Sri Lanka, the Maldives, Mauritius, Seychelles as being torn uh, between India and China. Now, now things to seem appear to have, you know, settled at some level in the sense that these countries, you know, have re um, up their uh, alignment with India. India has also dumped in significant resources to these countries. At the same time, India is also using its own territory. I think about the Andaman and Nicobar Islands um, as, as growing and investing in, in port infrastructure and domain awareness. It's also reaching out, as I cite, uh, and we haven't talked a lot about the Malabar exercise. Last fall, and this the Malabar exercise has been going on for uh, a decade approximately, I think, or more. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I should say between India, the United States, Japan was added recently, and then most significantly, last fall, the Indians invited the Australians to come on board. Uh, so seeing a maritime, the quad in the maritime space was very important. Uh, and in addition to that, seeing India kind of push further east, as I talk about, they hosted Malabar exercise in, in parts of the South China Sea in 2016. There's been growing outreach um, to Indonesia, um, to Malaysia, other countries in, in the larger uh, ASEAN um, mm-hmm. sphere showing that India really is trying to maneuver in ways as it should to kind of manage uh, what it and counteract what China is doing. Great. Stephen, want to India, wrap this up? India, you know, I, I wrote a book about India 15 years ago. Uh, talking about the bus, yeah, yeah, for the Army. Uh, it, it's on the Army War College website, if you have uh, Strategic Studies Institute which talked about the possibility of India and the United States being as what was called then natural allies. And there's still a lot of desire for that, but it's not happening. I'm just, you know, being perhaps the older here. I mean, I've been hearing about India as a great power for a long time, and the Indians have consistently failed to take advantage of the opportunities presented them. And now they're in a terrible, it's a terrible, tragic situation there. But it goes, but you know, this situation reveals some of the glaring problems of India's inf- socio-economic political infrastructure, um, just as it, the pandemic did here. Sure. The Indian government has a sophisticated cadre of strategic experts out of elites who recognize the dilemmas that they are being challenged by. But the, for whatever reason, they have never been able to maximize their potential to deal with it. And they are now being threatened in what has been for them their backyard. And I'm not altogether convinced that they know yet how to respond adequately enough to those challenges. It will be a great uh, great experience for us to sit back and watch what India Mm -hmm. does in the next 10 to 15 years. But there's no doubt in my mind that China is out to challenge India at home and abroad and is moving very quickly to do so. The Indians have, I think, woken up to the challenge, but I'm not sure that they've woken up to, the, to what needs to be done in order to compete effectively with China. And it remains to be seen what will happen. All right. Thank you for that. Uh, and we'll go on to the recommendations now. Uh, Jeffrey has really put out a good set of recommendations in between. I have a few quotes so uh, we can get through. I believe there's like 10 recommendations. Now, we don't have time to comment on all of them. Um, I just like to sort of stop and go, if I may, to get just just a quick reaction. Um, So 10 recommendations. Uh, First one is to drive a wedge between Russia and China. Uh, That that seems to be what both of you were saying, too. Um, There's this... uh, there's this alliance, apparently, or as Stephen says, you know, non, non-spoken alliance. Or um, is this the most important piece of this this puzzle for both of you, Jeffrey? We'll start with just very quickly. Yeah, I take a deep breath because <laughs> yeah. uh, it's hard to give a brief answer. I know. Um, I think there, and it, and it take, and what it's going to take is for the United States to be very focused. It's also going to take Europe and NATO to be focused. The challenge right now for NATO, as we know, 
uh, and we haven't talked a lot about Turkey, but the NATO alliance is also shaky at some level, and Turkey has not helped that. And certainly what happened in the past week, uh, the Biden administration recognizing the Armenian genocide uh, puts a further, um, you know, cooling of the relationship. Russia has been, you know, smart to try to work with Turkey to kind of pull it more into its orbit. Nevertheless, uh, as I pointed out, and as we discussed briefly, just briefly, the Arctic, absolutely. Again, Article 234, I think, could be a point of their space. Vietnam, which we haven't talked a lot about, Stephen mentioned it um, correctly. There's a long historic relationship here. Russia wants access. At the same time, Russia's been silent on, uh, you know, kind of explicitly having a policy toward the South China Sea. And as we know, China and Vietnam have the disputed islands. So it, yeah. it's it's trying to not you know make any additional waves to use the maritime pun. And then the last yeah. point here is Ukraine. China has growing investments in Ukraine. And, and, and it could be, could uh, be that China will not be so happy if Russia is kind of sticking in also affecting China's geoeconomic interests. Very good. All right. Um, let's move on to number two. I'll, I'll take you alternatively because just, just a quick commentary. Number two, uh, Jeffrey writes, infuse more transparency into the Maritime Silk Road and One Belt, One Road initiative. Stephen? Well, yes, but you're not going to get that transparency from China. So what has to be done, and there are tentative steps in that direction, is that the United States and its allies have to pool their resources to compete in providing countries along the in the BRI, and it's really Asia, Africa, Latin America, with right. the uh, investment and services they need. Now, what we are seeing already is that in 2020, and I think this is you know too late to have uh, shown up in your book, but we saw resistance and failures uh, in the BRI. Uh, resistance to people who didn't like the debt conditions, they didn't want to fall into the debt trap to China, right. or that the Chinese overreached and so on. There's an article, for example, in Foreign Affairs now about mm -hmm. how China has overreached and been excessively arrogant. But the United States and Japan have already done this. This, is, this started, I think, in the Trump administration, actually. There are other things going on with regard to, I believe, Europe and perhaps our Asian allies put together to demonstrate that we can invest in these countries and provide a better result for them uh, than, the than what would happen with the Chinese. Now- All right, Let, let's, sorry, Let, let's move on to the third point, which is precisely what you're saying, to fight economic development with economic development. But let me move on to the fourth point, which I found very interesting, Jeffrey. I want you to just explain this to me, if you can, in a couple of lines. Deploy more U.S. and EU Treasury officials abroad? What does that mean? Yeah, so one quick thing, I just want to hit what Stephen was talking about, which was a really important point, that China absolutely has faced roadblocks and obstacles. One of the things I try to point out, though, is, and granted, I was looking primarily at the maritime port infrastructure, that even if you have a 50% success rate, that's still a 50% success rate. And specifically when it comes to port and infrastructure, supply and logistics networks, these are a lot easier to control and contain compared to some of the other investments. So that's why I think we've seen 
uh, greater amounts of, of success in some cases. Now, when it comes to deploying treasury, one of the things I saw in Sri Lanka <clears throat> was very innovative, um, was sending US treasury, treasury officials abroad um, here to help the Sri Lankans, as we know the case of Hambantota, um, development of uh, Colombo port, but also taking in just mass amounts of, of loans and put, being put in a difficult spot. And I will say that Sri Lankans pointed out to me, hey, we have agency in this. We actually proposed a lot of the terms, asked for this, because again, having fought a civil war, the Chinese were one of the few countries, if only countries, say, hey, we'll help you. And so the Sri Lankans being very receptive and appreciative of that. Nevertheless, it was one of the more innovative programs. And I think since this come out, I think more have kind of you know, latched on to the fact of using, to go back to Stephen's whole of government approach, using treasury officials, using economic statecraft as a way to kind of assist central government in managing their loans. Uh, it's a smart way since there's so many loans, um, concessionary loans, uh, conventional loans, et cetera. So helping central banks really get their uh, economic house in order, well, I thought it was a smart idea. Great. All right. So we've already more or less talked about your fifth suggestion, which is support partners and allies. I just want to be able to jump through a couple of these. And we just mentioned India in your sixth point, prepare India to defend its homeland from the sea. Maybe you could just briefly comment on that, Jeffrey. So what, one of the points we hear a lot about is a uh, term interoperability. And, and, and I, I agree with Stephen, it's been going on a long time. India, understandably, has been very hesitant about you know, joining up with the United States. Um, but it, and it also, on top of the historical legacy that it has with Russia in terms of its reliance on its weapon systems and then moving you know, more in, in the camp of the United States or Europeans for that matter. Mm -hmm. But if the United States can really think and put to practice of creating and promoting interoperability, um, whether it's, you know, ship to ship platform, sharing of technology, sharing of just general reconnaissance, etc. Uh, this can go a long way, I think, to helping India and other partners and allies be prepared for the moment um, something might happen, conflict or might escalate, etc. And, and this then could really help, you know, I think, again, the United States having to think about how do we off, offset, uh, have more burden sharing with our partners and allies, and India, of course, being front and center to that. So I, I think there, there's a lot of potential. I don't disagree, and I write about this too. The Indian bureaucracy has really hampered um, and, and hindered India's kind of full potential. You hear that time and again. At the same time, you also hear, listen, uh, you know, when I was there visiting, doing research for the book, this is happening on our own time. It's going to happen. But then the question is, you know, when when is it going to happen? You know, as Stephen wrote 15 years ago. Sure. OK, the next one I'd like to get your take on, Stephen. And then, of course, I think the following one, too, because you've written so extensively about to sort of get a, you know, a sounding board here. Number seven is protect the submarine cables. And number eight is build up the U.S. Navy strategically. So, Stephen, just a few words about maybe submarine cables, and then I'll get you both to exchange on, on that last point of the U.S. Navy. Submarine cables connect the United States with Europe and Asia and a vast amount of information, both strategic and economic, go through those cables on a 
moment by moment basis. The Russians have already made signs that they're interested in attacking them. And they are waging an electronic cyber and information warfare against the US. It is of the utmost importance, therefore, that those cables in the North, in the Atlantic and in the Pacific be defended, secured, and that uh, enemy attempts to strike at them be driven off. Uh, I think that should be obvious to anybody who thinks about this problem. Uh, the US Navy certainly does, NATO certainly does. It created a whole new command to defend the Atlantic uh, after it had disbanded the original Sackland yes. uh, in the original NATO. And uh, this ties into the Arctic because what you want to do is keep the Russian Navy bottled up in the Arctic. You don't want them to get into the high north, which is the Greenland, Iceland, UK gap. gap. From there, they go into the Atlantic Ocean and it becomes much more difficult to track them down and so on. So this is an absolute priority. And the Russians have made it a priority for their uh, naval and uh, military warfare. I suspect the Chinese have done so also in the Pacific, where these cables are of equal importance. So uh, okay. Jeff is absolutely right. Great. Um, so, uh, Jeffrey, and then maybe just swing into the U.S. Navy if we can <laughs> sort of yeah. maybe link them. And that, you know, Stephen laid that out really well. And I'll just add a couple of finer points to put it in perspective. Approximately 95% of all communications, internet, phone, etc., traverse those submarine cables. Right. In addition to that, they're only an estimated 200, and you can track this openly and see. It's really fun, fun to kind of see mm -hmm. where the mm -hmm. cables go in and out of particular countries. They're only about 200. And the Chinese have been really smart. I write about this, you know, of laying these resilient cables, not dissimilar from what the British did in 1902 with the laying of the all red cable of connecting its out, outlying colonial outposts via the telegraph. Because information is power. And if anything, God forbid, happens to any of those lines, we're in real difficult, dire straits. And you can see Russia on the map only has two uh, in and out points from the submarine cables really? in 2019 they just signed an agreement with a Finnish company I believe to add a third uh, trans-arctic cable uh, so clearly they understand and appreciate just like the Chinese the just like the United yeah. States does too there are many private corporations trying to develop their own uh, you know put in their own uh, resilient lines because this this is the future now it comes to the future of the U.S. Navy the other uh, service I want to put in there is the Coast Guard we haven't talked a lot about I write, yes, that's you the know, next point. At some level, you know, <laughs> yes, the ninth not, point. <laughs> they would not be happy to lump the two together, but I do want to. Make I know. A plug I didn't want to of, do that. <laughs> of how how important the Coast Guard can be and is for a small global presence, really being able to partner up uh, with with countries that don't have the naval capacity and capability. Uh, all that said, you know, to go back to the Navy, I think we are, the Navy will, it, it's going to be a real battle within Congress. Again, you know, the theme of the day here um, across the segments is the financial constraints that we're going to face down the road, the all real right. challenges, uh, you know, and for the ship counters out there, the United States currently has around 289 ships. They want to get to 355, I think, by 2034. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to be that that'll be a uh, I would be surprised to get it. Um, maybe they will. Nonetheless, it gets that China currently has, I think, 300 ships or so or so 
the Indo-PACOM successive commanders have talked about how if anything were to break out in the South China Sea, for example, because of uh, not only the naval platforms that China has developed, but also its anti-axis area denial capabilities, um, its ISR domain awareness and the artificial islands that it's constructed over the past decade or so or more have really put us in a difficult spot and why we continue to kind of promote these freedom of navigation operations uh, being so important to uploading and adhering to the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. But I think, you know, it's not just ships, but it's also these naval technologies. I agree with Stephen, he pointed out previously, uh, you know, unmanned, submersible uh, vehicles or undersea warfare with drones is, is very much going to be the future. We, we've read reports about the Russians, for example, um, testing a nuclear drone in the Arctic, but also doing non-nuclear drones, the capability of creating, you know, I read somewhere about, um, you know, creating a tsunami on a coastline. Uh, so these are certainly wow. concerning and certainly, you know, the, as the as friends like to joke, the robot wars are coming. Uh, I think that that is that is going to be a future. Certainly we'll have traditional conventional platforms that will remain important and that the Navy needs to think about. But I think there's a whole host of other innovative technological advancement advancements um, that that really the United States will need to focus on. All right, final words, Stephen, on that subject, and then we'll, we'll close our segment. Well, it's it's hard to build on that, but it, it's very clear <laughs> that it's not only the U.S. Navy. Our allies have to do more navally as well. We just saw uh, in the Ukraine crisis. I think that the threat to send ships, U.S. ships into the Black Sea, plus the fact that NATO is entering the Black Sea more, uh, got Putin's attention, as did the Turkish opposition to what he was doing. So that may have had an impact on him deciding to pull some troops back and lower tensions. It is essential that not only the United States, but that our allies recognize the naval threats to their security that we've discussed, that Jeffrey discusses in his book, and I and hundreds of other people have written about, because we can't do it alone anymore. No, exactly. And the idea that Europe can simply sit back and let the United States defend it uh, you know, these German public opinion polls, they think, well, we don't have to do anything. Washington, America will defend us. This is a, this is fantasy. Yeah, yeah that's true. Uh, they have to realize that they, Europe has to realize it's under, uh, that Russia's at war with Europe. Uh, the Russians say they are. So I'm not making this up. Uh, yeah. And the same thing is true with the Chinese threats to Asia. Uh, people have to wake up and, and realize what's, what's going on. And they have to defend themselves. Now, to the extent that they build their own naval capabilities, this facilitates interoperability and cooperation with the United States and our and in in our alliance networks, both in Asia and in Europe, and in the Middle East, with whomever we can work with there. So uh, the U.S. Navy is going to need to get more ships and more capabilities and be ready to be fighting future kinds of battles, as Jeff right. talked about. But. Uh, this also means a bigger budget for the Coast Guard in its own right. The Coast Guard now just went in the Black Sea this morning. Uh, I, as we were talking, somebody sent me an email about this. Um, the uh, Coast Guard desperately wants to play in the Arctic. The budget isn't there. I mean, everybody's every service has now created an Arctic strategy. But the budget tells you, this is what I can do. 
and what I'm willing to set money against for the next right. X number of years. The money is not there for a huge American presence in the Arctic, whether or not that's needed. That's that's another debate. But sure. the Arctic is a matter of life and death to Europe and to North Atlantic security. And it's certainly of increasing importance to Asian countries besides China, India, Singapore, North Korea, uh, South Korea, and Japan are all vitally interested in the Arctic for one or another reason. Sure. So they have to make the same investments and we have to make those investments as well. And that also means finally that the under, underlying all of this is that the first task of the American strategist is to put the American economy on a secure growth foundation to build those capabilities. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. I, I, I'm not going to argue about domestic policy, but any strategist will tell you this. You can sit here in your office and write up the greatest strategy ever, but if the money is not there to pay for it, it's yeah. worthless. Yeah. Well, this will conclude our discussion. Thank you both, Dr. Jeffrey Grush, Dr. Stephen Blank. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I, all I can do is recommend, because we didn't have enough time to go into all the issues, Jeffrey's excellent book is entitled To Rule Eurasia Waves, The New Great Power Competition at Sea. Thank you both very much for joining me today. Thanks very much. That was fun. It was fun, and I hope we can do something together again. Absolutely. We will. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Okay. Goodbye.